Engaging Leader, episode 184, using storytelling to lead a transformation at Lowe's home improvement stores and at your company, featuring Kyle Nell. Brought to you by the team at Workforce Communication. Find out more at workforcecommunication.com. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action. Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. We have a fascinating topic and guest for you today. The home improvement store chain Lowe's was named number one among Fast Company's 2018 Most Innovative Companies for Augmented and Virtual Reality. And they were named number one for innovation among specialty retailers on Fortune's 2018 World's Most Admired Companies. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about basically a hardware store chain. How did a company in a dusty, old-hat industry like that suddenly become known as an innovator? Well, as founder and executive director of Lowe's Innovation Labs, the company's disruptive innovation hub, Kyle Nell was at the forefront of this dramatic business transformation. Today, he's going to join us to share his story, and he's going to talk about how the next level of storytelling, using unconventional tools like science fiction, graphic novels, applied neuroscience, and archetypes, can help overcome human behavior barriers and can help you as well to reinvent your own company's future. We're going to talk about some tips to help you lead both small and large transformations in areas not just including innovation, but also human resources and all the related topics like talent and culture, and also including marketing, process improvement, business strategy, and so many more ways this could be applied. Kyle Nell is co-author of Leading Transformation, How to Take Charge of Your Company's Future, Kyle left Lowe's earlier this year to become the CEO and co-founder of Uncommon Partners, a consulting and training firm specializing in business transformation. Kyle Nell, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Kyle, tell us the story of how you started working at Lowe's. Yeah, I started working at Lowe's uh, coming after working at, at Walmart in Bentonville, Arkansas. I was recruited there to to Lowe's to run international marketing research, and which I did for a while. And from there, I got, really got into the organization. And then that was, you know, kind of gave me the beachhead to really lay out my full master plan, which ultimately led to what's in the book. So the, the, you actually, there would never was something called Lowe's Innovation Labs before you got no. there. What led to that? You know, every organization has this either implicit or explicit understanding that they need to constantly transform and constantly innovate. And, but they're not really sure what that means. And so the Lowe's Innovation Labs, there were a lot of innovation groups inside of Lowe's. You know, I, I, can, I could, lost count how many groups uh, had innovation in their charter or their actual name was innovation. But, but they weren't producing, they were, they were producing what I would call incremental innovations, mm-hmm. which no, nothing wrong with that. That's important and necessary and great. But to really, really not just stay relevant but to stay ahead, you have to have, you know, what Clayton Christensen would call tr- disruptive innovation um, happening a- as a process and as a regular clip or else you become obsolete fairly quickly. And so 
the leaders in our, in our organization had that same understanding, but didn't really know exactly what to do. And I had started innovating and doing some pretty significant things within that uh, research and um, research sphere, which then kind of gave me the credibility to take it the next step and the next step. And then ultimately that led to the Lowe's Innovation Labs. So give us an example of some of the tools that you use to basically expand people's imaginations. Yeah, I would even start with, if it's okay, you can start with kind of like the, the crux, I think, of, of what makes what we do different than others is, you know, most organizations, when they feel like they're being disrupted or about to be disrupted, whatever that means, they look at that as a skills gap problem. So they think, oh, we don't have somebody that's an expert in AI or, oh, we don't have this or that. And so what they do is they typically go out and they uh, start an innovation lab to try to, A, get people that they feel like they're missing in the organization, usually from a skills gap point of view. And then they sequester them in these in these cool labs somewhere in whatever hipster part of the town that they're in or in San Francisco. And then they just expect it to kind of like solve itself. And for all of the innovation lab talk and innovation money spent, there's relatively few success stories. And looking at it from a behavioral scientist point of view, which is what my academic background is, it was very clear to me that the primary problem was not a skills gap problem, but a human problem. You know, you could literally create the most perfect, wonderful thing, but if there's no way to ingest it back into the organization, you might as well not even have made it. And and so what the idea was, why don't we address the actual core problem, which is not uh, focusing on the customer, actually, but it's focusing on the first gate to get to the customer, which is to deal with the organization in which you exist. And that's where the use of stories and new KPIs and all of those things came about. Um, it was it was reframing the problem and and using that to address what I thought the core issues were. So in some cases, you did bring in, you ended up bringing in some new talent but yeah. you really started with the talent that you had to begin with and uh, imagine and identify real problems and, and imagine what the future could look like to meet those needs. Exactly. So yeah, if the first problem is just trying to get your head around, not how one individual thing might affect the future, but how the cacophony of different things will interrelate with one another in order to be the future. Well, the only real mechanism that I'm aware of which really allows for the, for any person from any background to really understand the interrelatability uh, and the confluence of things is through stories. And we take stories for granted. Like our brains are literally hardwired to love and receive stories. So when you go into a business context, I was really shocked to see that no one was really telling stories. What was passing for stories was just a chronological series of events at best. That's not a story. <laughs> a story is characters, it's conflict, it's a narrative arc. And and we love stories. So that was that was kind of secret number one. Like, why don't we hire science fiction writers, give them all of our marketing research and trend data, and then see how all of this stuff could play out in five and ten years. And and then then we can argue about the outcomes of those stories instead of the individual uh, bullet points in those in those various fields. So instead of arguing about AI, instead of arguing about 3D printing. What about how all these things will come together um, in a moment of time? And then, and then if we agree that that is a probable future, what would we do now differently 
in order to prepare not just to exist, but to thrive and take advantage of that future. And that was the the big master plan, which we did. I literally hired science fiction writers. <laughs> we literally went out and we wrote short stories with characters, conflict, and a narrative arc. And I turned those short stories into comic books. And the reason why I did that is because it's a behavioral economics and a behavioral science principle of just presenting it in a different form than people are used to. And they laughed at me when I first presented it. Oh, Kyle, you're so silly. Huh. And uh, But what happens is they get into the story and they realize, oh, crap. If we do this, if we don't do this and someone else does, we're in deep trouble, which yeah. then the flip side also happens, which is, oh, this is really exciting and it can become opportunistic. And that's how we started working on virtual and augmented reality before Oculus Rift even came out on Kickstarter. And now Lowe's this year was listed as the most innovative company um, in VR and AR, not amongst retailers, but in the world. There's no way you get from that to that unless there's something larger driving it. So we're, we're talking about overall business transformations, more broadly speaking, but just, I know I'm going to get really granular here in, into the topic of just pure innovation, but give us an example so that we can, our listeners can have a sense for like, what kind of changes were you guys envisioning and, and where did it go? Yeah. So I can give you outputs and then I can talk about process. Maybe okay. that makes sense. Yeah. So we, all of these started as stories and we, the idea was that innovation wasn't this magical serendipitous event that happened, but it could be a process driven system like anything else, um, but just needed very new tools to be able to make that happen. And so anyways, using story as an example as the base. So for instance, Lowe's, we built the largest virtual and augmented reality showrooms and stores. Um, and like I said, went for no one would have expected Lowe's to be the most innovative, uh, VR AR company on the planet. Mm -mm. Um, Lowe's is not a VR and AR company <laughs> at its core, but it, but 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 what we are or, or they are now. I guess I'm not well, part of Lowe's anymore. Um, and it, but also in in uh, parallel, helped to develop the first autonomous robots. They spoke speak 25 different languages. You talk to it, it talks to you. Um, it does real time inventory tracking inside the store, um, and those have been working for years now. And now have been adopted by many other retailers across the world. Um, but that's a separate company that was in a partnership with this amazing company called Fellow Robots that was working on something wholly different until we shared with them the story that we developed. We also did a lot with additive manufacturing, so 3D printing. Um, and we, ultimately, that la laddered up to actually helping to put the first 3D printer in the, internet, in the International Space Station. So the first thing manufactured off of the planet, commercially manufactured off the planet, is a Lowe's tool uh, that the astronauts used. Um, That's amazing. Who would have ever thought that Lowe's would do that? And then the beauty of that was it wasn't some marketing exercise. It was because they were pushing the boundaries of what 3D printing could do in a practical sense. And then we were able to partner with them and bring that tech down to earth as well and then share what we had been building and give that to them. And it becomes this, these, these beautiful... Um, uncommon partnerships that allow for mass change to happen. Okay, so I have to break this down into something I can get my head around. So the space station, I'm thinking, I'm comparing this to the movie Apollo 13 when exactly. Tom Hanks is out there in space and they, they need something that they don't have it. And uh, so you fast forward, what, would, what could have happened today if they had that technology that you guys envisioned and made brought to life is they just fire up the 3D printer and the uh, engineers back on Earth say, well, what you need is such and such, and we'll send you exactly. the plans for that. And they just print it off like in a metal piece or a 
plastic piece. Plastic piece. Mm-hmm. And uh, voila. And so you guys did that um, with a, a, like a, a wrench from Lowe's, a Lowe's wrench, basically. And yeah. uh, then they could just use it. So they didn't have to take all those tools up there. They can just print them when they need them. Exactly. Because you can't anticipate, like the Apollo 13 example, you can't anticipate every potential problem. You can, you can anticipate a lot, but not everything. So, yeah, how, how awesome is it to have a machine that can make anything in the exact way that you laid out? Yeah. So you talk about virtual reality. And so you're, the, the comic book story that you guys came up with was, uh, in the very first story, was a couple who was going throughout their day and they want, were, wanted to redesign their kitchen. And so they just yeah. started using heads-up displays right in their kitchen to imagine what, they, what it would look like as opposed to the rest of the world always thinks, well, you got to go into a store, you got to go into a Lowe's store and uh, use the tools there to try to imagine your kitchen. And, um, but you're just started thinking about what, what if you could imagine the kitchen right without leaving your kitchen? Yeah. And, and that seems kind of obvious now, I think, to a lot of people. But this was seven years ago. You know, no one was thinking about these kinds of things at all. And, and our entire model at the time was built around driving people to a store, right? That's what you do when you're a retailer. So to, to look at it that way was pretty wild. And, and for the Lowe's leadership to get behind it was, was also equally bold. Um, and, it, and it really has paid off. So the storytelling or the narrative tools that you used, you, you actually brought in science fiction people. You created these yes. comic book-like uh, these comic, well, not light comic books, you created comic books. And that both helped change the mindset of leadership so you actually could start getting support. That's part of the story you're telling is you had to get people on your side, get champions on your side, and then also get the actual brilliant minds, the, the innovators who could bring this stuff to life, help them start imagining a future like that. That's right. So it became the North Star, right? So mm. instead of having to fill in all the pieces because what most organizations want you to do, they want the IT roadmap, right? They want step-by-step, every little piece uh, figured <laughs> out. And, and, and when you're working on the edge, you just don't know, right? Yeah. I don't know what's going to come out. I didn't know Oculus Rift was going to come out in two weeks. I didn't know. I, I, you just don't know, right? You don't know what's coming next. So instead of doing that, which is a fool's errand, in my opinion, on this, on this kind of stuff, what you do is you set an intention, you set a, a vision, you set a, a world you're working towards. And then you try to reverse engineer that. And then as new things develop, you shift your, your tactics, but you don't shift your purpose. And so that's what we, that's what the comic books allow you to do is this is what we're trying to make happen faster. Um, and all the undergirding invisible tech happen faster. And so we're looking for partnerships. We're looking to even build things from scratch in order to make that happen. It's a very different mindset than than the than the IT roadmap strategy, which most organizations are comfortable with. Yeah, it's very exciting. So, what would that look like you, with uh, a business issue outside of innovation? Uh, at, you know, a, a business transformation because your your clients are not asking you just, "Hey, we, we want to also have an innovation lab." Um, yeah. how, how does this look in, in terms of other types of business transformations? Yeah, great question. So the way that we lay it out in the book, and and, I, and this is how it's played out in the real world, is there's when people talk about transformation, they usually mean what I would call big T transformation. So you've completely evolved or you're metamorphosized into something wholly different than you were before. Well, that's a that's a that's the manifestation of a long process of a lot of what we call little T transformations. 
And those little T transformations, depending on what scope or what group you're in, could be exactly what you need and want, right? So depending on the group that's, that's reaching out to us, maybe the focus is only on training inside of your organization. That might appear on the outside into Wall Street as a little T transformation, but for that part of the organization, that is a massive transformation. So we focus on not just going after only large, large T or big T transformations, but the little ones, the little T transformations that, that ladder up and create these, uh, these massive changes. And would it be a similar type process where you might actually have mm-hmm. a science fiction and set, uh, writer and, and a comic book approach and said, this is what our organization could look like five years from now or 20 years from now? Uh, and, exactly. And paint that vision? Yeah, exactly. It doesn't always have to be a science fiction writer and a comic book. It, it's really more about it, having a truly dictated and manifested story. So we've, we've done all kinds of other mediums and worked with speculative fiction writers and other things. But you have to have a, a something, put a stake in the ground and say, this is what we're working towards. And if you don't have, my, my uh, experience has taught me that if that is not articulated in a believable and tangible and digestible way, you're just kind of floundering around, right, and doing work. And so that, that, that articulated position of the future of where we're going is critically important. Whether it be with science fiction writers and comic books, is, is, uh, it works very well, but it can come up in other forms too. So the bottom line is you, you have to have this narrative arc. You've got to tell a story yes. that has a real problem-conflict-resolution format like every story has. That's exactly right. If it doesn't, you're 100% right. If it doesn't have those things, those elements, it's not a story. So just so that our, our listeners, um, some of them are like me and maybe need it real concrete. If it's not a comic book, can you tell us a little bit more about what, what could it look like? Yeah, we've done videos. Um, we've done just regular short stories with no, with some graphics inside, but not a comic book. So reading just a regular old short story. We've done uh, virtual reality simulators. So you can actually experience what that world would be like. Um, and kind of run through that day, but it's more of a choose your own adventure kind of a thing. Um, we've tried a wide variety of things, but the thing, the form that works far and the best away is, is the comic book or the graphic novel. And the reason there's a whole bunch of neuroscience behind that. We've tested this, uh, to, to the extreme, the different mediums. What we see when we do the neuro testing is, is that it, it works because in a video, you get spoon fed all of the, all the various features. So you're more passive and you're absorbing it. Right. When you have to read, it requires quite a lot of furtive, like very, you know, I have to really think and imagine all of the context and all of the imagery and how things can come together. And that almost can kind of be a little bit too hard for most folks, especially when you're talking about this disruptive kind of stuff. What the graphic novel, the comic book allows you to do is there's enough imagery plus enough, um, space in between because you're not you're not explaining everything perfectly because it's not a movie. Um, it requires enough engagement to be able to, um, but also enough imagination to kind of be in that sweet spot so people then can put themselves into that future as well. So there's there's a little bit of uh, there's a little bit of, there's a lot of science to that magic of the comic book that seems to be the most effective tool for this process. In other organizations. I'm thinking about how you originally had that resistance at Lowe's and where you said they laughed at you. Does that still happen? Is that something? So if, uh, 
if one of our listeners um, wants to take this approach or, or hires you, uh, should they still expect that kind of resistance at yes. first? <laughs> 100%. So it's always, it's always the most dangerous to be the first one to do anything, right? Mm-hmm. And so the first time I did this, it, it, was, it was insane. No one had ever done this before. I couldn't point to a case study of another organization that had tried this, right? So this was truly, truly the, the, the cutting edge. And it, and it could have totally blown up on my face. I, I, I had no idea, right? I had never tried it before. Um, but it worked. So the ad, we have a lot of case studies that show that it works, but it is still very, very, very different than the normal way that most organizations operate and most consultants will tell you you should operate. So when you step into that, that spot where it's new and different, you're exposing yourself to ridicule and to, uh, and, to, and, and to all of the things that come about from being that person that's kind of out there. But there's huge benefits to, to trying something new as well. So, so I, I would say my experience has been if people aren't openly laughing at what you're doing, you're not pushing it far enough. Hmm. Um, and so if, if, you know, that if, if you're not, if you're not trying it, trying something different, then you're not really trying something different. Um, and so that's, that's a hard thing. Most, most people say they want to be in and be innovative and they want to really push the envelope, but it's a, it's a lonely <laughs> place to be. Anyone will tell you that's done that. It's a very lonely place to be. So yeah, expect it to happen, but just knowing that that's part of the process is also comforting as well, um, and that that's just part of it. And then eventually, once we get through these pieces, then then all of the stuff starts to show up, and then everybody um, pretends they were behind it all along. Is is usually how it goes too. I wonder if you can share an example of you know maybe it's a little T type transformation. I know one group of. Uh, clients that that tends to hire you are the chief human resource officers um is there an example of uh you, you may or may not want to get into names or whatever but yeah. what, what what types of things would a, a chief hr officer uh need your help with and, and could put this kind of a strategy in place right so i can't name names for obvious reasons but when you uh, one one that, that comes to mind is over and over again you see our Chief HR officers are, are saddled with a lot of responsibility and a lot of compliance. And uh, basically, they're like the, the place kicker on a football team, right? So when they do their job right, everyone goes, ah, of course. But if they don't do their job right, then they're in deep trouble. <laughs> and and it's it, like every other part of every organization, it's getting incredibly hard. It's getting increasingly harder to do that kind of base job because things are shifting. Expectations are shifting. And so when you're in an organization whose primary job is to is compliance and then also kind of the story of the organization is kind of wrapped in there, it's it's getting harder. And so I find we find a lot of chief HR officers are coming to us and saying, help us think through what this story is of what we're doing and why we're doing all this stuff. And then then help us reshuffle about how we could actually make these things happen instead of, well, we've always done it this way. I'm not going to get fired for doing what's always been done. Um, let's take a more progressive look at it and say, what, what is it that we should be doing? What does the future look like? And then let's work backwards to re-engineer that. And that's a pretty bold move um, for these chief HR officers, but we're seeing it happen in, in droves, actually, this kind of awakening of what, what that office and what that organization could be like if it, if it really uh, kind of pushed the envelope a little bit, especially when it comes to training and things like that. What are, besides uh, HR, what are some of the other areas that, uh, that you're getting hired to help? 
The the other really big one, which is quite interesting, I think, is uh, the other group that has evolved significantly in their role and position as the chief marketing officer. The chief marketing officer used to just do marketing. <laughs> you don't really see that much anymore. <laughs> you know, you, you see they, they're responsible for literally everything. Um, uh, they're running P&Ls and they're running P&Ls on things, on, on products and categories that didn't exist two and three years ago. Um, they are constantly having to re-justify their budget. They're trying to uh, influence the organization and also product development as it keeps coming. I mean, they are, they are, they're managing shareholders. They're, they're, they're doing all kinds of things that, that, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago, the chief marketing officer never did. Um, and so that role has once again become increasingly complex. And going back to the, the just the core of what are we what are we optimizing for? What is what is the future that we're going for? And then how do we reverse engineer that? So we spent a lot of time with uh, quite a few chief marketing officers going through the same process using these same tools, but applying it to their specific area and their specific focus. Kyle, if someone is listening to this and wanted to try some of these ideas today, even without hiring your firm, what, where could they start? What tools could they put into practice? Yeah, there's, there's, quite, a, there's quite a few, and they're, and they're in the book, of course. But um, two, two things that I found to be critically important. Um, one is just a very, very easy exercise, but can be very profound. So one is an archetypical exercise. So bear with me here. Um, everyone's pr- probably familiar with Carl Jung and, um, you know, all the various folks that have talked about uh, archetypes, you know, the hero, the outlaw, the caretaker, all that good stuff. There's different versions, but basically they're the same. Joseph Campbell type stuff. Exactly. Joseph Campbell is my personal hero. But yes, okay. Joseph Campbell. And and if you haven't read any Joseph Campbell, that would be a homework number one. Uh, I, what I did was when I started early on, one of the biggest things that I learned was that we all are playing roles inside of our organization. And our organization is also playing a role. So identifying what archetypes our organization is, like our larger company is, and then what what role our group might play within that organization, and then the individuals. So let me give you an example. So early on, I really struggled getting some of these things off the ground, not from a technical standpoint, not from getting the executives on board, but getting kind of that that uh, middle layer, that VP, SVP layer. And I really struggled with that. And I didn't really understand why, because I had gotten the buy, you know, the quote unquote buy-in. I had, I had done all the, the right things. Um, we had stuff that worked, but I could not get certain things like, for instance, past legal. And, uh, and I think <laughs> no, that never happens, that. never happens. Right. <laughs> and I got, was frustrated, you know, and, and, and I wasn't, I was reading Joseph Campbell again, right? And I it just kind of like dawned on me, why don't I apply these same processes that Joseph Campbell uses for literature and for narrative to the real world? So I literally, I went home and I wrote down all of the people I needed to influence, their names. Then I wrote down what they wanted. I thought from a career standpoint, what they really wanted. And then I wrote what, not what I wanted them to do, but what they wanted. And then I wrote down what I thought their archetype was. And what I realized very quickly was, and then I did the same thing for myself. And what I realized very quickly was I was, my archetype was directly in conflict with their archetype. So the folks that I struggled with were caretakers. These aren't bad people. Their job is literally there to make sure you don't burn the place down, right? Hmm. And so what I did was then I found language 
to reframe what it was that I was trying to do to match with what their, what their archetype was. For instance, I would say things, I know it sounds super corny, but I would say things like, I would give examples of, of organizations that did not take measured risk and they don't exist anymore. So if your job is to keep the company going and you can show that if you don't take this measured risk, you are putting the company in jeopardy, that is a completely different situation than coming in and talking about stores in space. <laughs> um, and so, and so those kinds of little things really help. So I would say things like it's risky not to take risk. Here's how I'm helping save the company, or here's how we're providing new avenues or new optionality for the company that didn't exist before. All of a sudden those organizations became my best friends, honestly and truly. And mm -hmm. they then saw their job by and large in order to facilitate what we were doing in order to, to do what they, their core responsibility was. We weren't opposed anymore. The work never changed. What changed was the way that we were I was talking with them and the, the bridges that we were building. So those archetypes are incredibly powerful. You, I would say uh, the one thing that's just really easy to do is just to think for a second, who am I in direct conflict with right now? Who is, who is in my way? And whoever pops in your mind, that's who you should focus on right now and literally write up this try this archetypical exercise and try to find language and ways that you can make the bridge for them. And I promise things will get a lot better. Um, that's one thing you can do. The other, the other is using experimental design as a tool. I was shocked when I got into the real business world to see how little people were using experimental design as taught since third grade um, in, in any kind of testing and what was going on and what they were doing. Most of what I saw was retroactive financial analysis with maybe some marketing research sprinkled in instead of having a rigorous hypothesis independent dependent variable testing, which I just thought to be ludicrous. <laughs> and so in the book, we, 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 I, we lay it out, but I, I developed this thing that we call the experimental design canvas, which is really just using social science experimental design to identify what it is we're testing, how we can lay out new KPIs and new measures of success tied to those, to those things. And so that we can come up and agree to as an executive team or whoever you're working with, what it is we're trying to optimize for and how we're going to assess whether it's working or not working and which aspects are working and not working so that you can roll into the next phase, and the next phase, rather than this like COE correction of errors thing at the end where you're trying to divine what worked and what didn't work. Um, why not start from that from the beginning and then you can be testing and iterating along the way. And I found that those two things together, both using hardcore quantitative measures, but using new measures, not, not mature metrics of success, but new measures um, and identifying what those are. And then also having story and all these things wrapped up together is really what, what led to the success uh, at Lowe's and, and, and other places as well. The book again is Leading Transformation, How to Take Charge of Your Company's Future. And we've been talking with Kyle Nell about some practical ways to put that, that into action. Kyle, where can people get their hands on this book and find out more about you and your company? Yeah, so you can get the, the book in a number of different places. You can go to Amazon.com, of course, and get it. You can give it, get it on Harvard, HarvardBusinessReviewPress.com uh, and .org. And wherever books are sold, you'll be able to get this book starting November 6th. And then if you want to find out more about um, my company, Uncommon Partners, go to UncommonPartners.com. And there's more information there as well about our process and what we do. 
And in the show notes for this episode, we'll put a link to your website um, and also your Twitter profile and LinkedIn. Is there is there any? Uh, are you particularly active on any social media? Yeah, I'm very active on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Well, Kyle Nell, thanks so much for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right, Engagers, that wraps this episode. But we'll put all the links that Kyle mentioned on our show notes, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com forward slash 184. And I want to tell you, we're not only going to include links to Kyle's website, uh, kylenell.com, and his firm's website, uncommonpartners.com, and his book, leadingtransformationbook.com, We'll also include, uh, of course, his social media for LinkedIn and Twitter and a link to Lowe's Innovation Labs because if you're interested, I'd like you to check out some examples of storytelling that Lowe used. You'll be able to see some of the graphic novel examples for, uh, and comics and so forth. Um, lots of examples there of what Kyle would call narrative-driven innovation. Very interesting. Hope you enjoy it. Let us know what you think on social media or on the show notes in the comment section. Uh, and you can find my social media as well at Jesse Leahy on Twitter or on LinkedIn. This is a production of Workforce Communication. We are a team of consultants and creatives using the power of communication to help organizations enhance the well being and performance of their people. My colleagues and I partner with mid sized and large employers to attract top talent, fully engage employees, and achieve superior business results. In several areas, including employer branding, talent management, wellness, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at workforcecommunication.com. Our thanks to Cecily Leahy, our producer, James Marler, our sound engineer, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, in the 21st century, the real movers and shakers aren't just leaders, they're engagers. (laughs) 